your hand in both places. We're going to be jumping back and forth a lot between Luke 20 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do a lot here this morning of uh, Luke 20. I'm hoping that we can do verses 1 through uh, 44 today. That's a lot, but it's important to try to get the full context of this, because if we try to break this up into little pieces, we're not going to get the full context of what God has to say. Now, this is an interesting chapter, and just to get a little bit of the background here of where we're at, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We did Palm Sunday back in Luke 19, so we're in the final days of Christ's life on this earth. And what you have here in Luke 20 is every group coming up there trying to knock him down. The Pharisees are, the Sadducees are, the Herodians are, and we'll explain what each one of those groups are. But each one is trying to come here and knock Jesus out. Now, they have all these questions, they have all these different scenarios, and what you're going to see here this morning is Jesus handles each one perfectly. It's just a constant reminder to us that no matter what you think, no matter what corner you're backed into in life, where there doesn't seem to be an answer, Christ has the answer. He's got the foundation, He's got the answer, He has the strength, and Jesus proves that time and time again in this chapter, that no matter what situation you're facing, He's going to get you through it. So let's jump right into this and see. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? They come right out there. Now my translation, New King James, says that they confronted him. Some of the other translations doesn't use the word confront. It says they came upon him. Now I'm not a big fan of that phrase, came upon if you and I are both in Walmart and we happen to go down the same aisle, I came upon you. Hi, how are you doing? Confront, I want to find you. And when I find you, I'm going to question you. And I'm going to attack you verbally. That's what they did with Jesus. And they did this purposely. They did this publicly. They wanted a public attack. They wanted this public debate. And that's exactly what they get. So they start out, who gave you the authority to do this? And that's a question that has to get popped up, and the same thing still happens today. Now, you may not be asked that question just like that, but you'll get a version of it. Who gives you the right to say that that is wrong? Who gives you the right to call that sin? You know, why are we allowed to call that sin, but yet we think it's right? Who gives you the right or the authority to do that? And we have to talk about that. So who gives us the right or the authority to call sin, sin? To call what is wrong, wrong, and what is right, right? Well, if you're there in Second Timothy, let's talk about this. Great passage here in 2 Timothy. And this gives us that foundation to tell us right from wrong. It all comes back to God's Word, and that's what matters most. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look here at verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let's stop right there. That's a horrible PR verse for Christianity, but it's the truth. When you make a stand for Christ, you will suffer persecution. As soon as you say it work. I'm a Christian, you're going to suffer persecution. As, you, as soon as you take a stand at school, as soon as you take a stand at home, you will suffer persecution for your stand in Christ. It is going to happen. Do not be shocked at this. Do not be amazed at this. Don't. Jonathan taught a couple weeks ago, and he had a great point in there, saying as Christians, you will be attacked. They come right out and say, you will suffer persecution. Why? Look at verse 13. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The world is on this cycle of getting worse and worse 
and worse. That's what's happening. It's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Now, what do we do about that? Do we throw our hands up in the air and just give up and say there's nothing we can do? Do we just run to the mountaintops and build a little fort and wait for Jesus to return? No. What do we do? Verse 14. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from you have learned them. Even though I watch the world getting worse and worse and worse, it doesn't shock me. It doesn't surprise me. Because I continue in the things that the Lord told me to continue in. What did he tell me to continue in? Verse 15. That from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It comes down to the Scripture. When I have my foundation on the Scripture, when I realize that is my base on everything I do, the things of the world, yes, they break my heart. The things of the world, yes, it hurts me to see the world going downhill. But it does not shake my foundation in Christ. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. With my foundation being the scripture, that is the authority I have. This is not an egotistical statement. This is not a statement to say, I know more than I am better. But as a Christian that is born again and saved, and I believe in the complete inspiration of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, I have the authority to call sin, sin. I have the authority to say, that is right, that is wrong. Not based on my opinion. So when somebody comes and says, who gives you the right? I don't have the right. God's Word is right. So since God's Word is right, I can stick to the Scriptures. And as I stick to the Scriptures, I realize it's true. Now the problem, what happens with that statement... You'll run into all these arguments. Well, those verses were written 2,000 years ago, and I'm sure if Jesus was here today, he would understand the norms of society and things would be different. No, I beg to differ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Now, this has to be our foundation stone for this message. Because if you don't believe that, nothing else really matters. It goes back to what I call buffet-style Christianity. I'll pick what I want to pick. I'll take what I want to take. So, yes, you think that's wrong. So I respect you for thinking that's wrong. I personally don't think it's wrong, so I can't we just sing Kumbaya and say, be happy. No, we can't. And this is what happens. This is why as Christians we're called stubborn. And I actually take that as a compliment. Because we're not going to budge off the inspiration of God's Word. Now, make this point clear. Just because we believe the authority of God's Word, this also doesn't give us the right... To be nasty about it. I've seen Christians that are right in what they're saying, but in wrong on how they're presenting the message. You've got to be careful about that. Jesus, in this lesson today, is right in what he's saying, and he's also right in how he's presenting the message. We've got to make sure we have both sides. One of my favorite verses is in Ephesians, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. What happens when we believe this? Verse 17, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm complete because I have my foundation on Scripture. That's my moral standard of what's right and wrong, and that's what I base my life off. That is my authority, and my life is the Scripture. Once we have that foundation, now we can go back to Luke. So back to Luke 20, please. Verse 2, what gives him the right? What gives him the authority? Jesus' great answer. Why tell you, he has so many great answers in this chapter. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? 
And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? If we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, and they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, look at this. Verse 2. No-win situation. Some of you came in today, and you're in a no-win situation. You're backed into a corner. There is no hope. There's no nothing. Oh, there's always something. The Lord always has an answer that we may not see. How many times do we take our life and narrow it down to A or B? Well, if I do A, this is going to happen. If I do B, this is going to happen. Neither one's good. What about option C? Well, there is no option C. There always is an option C. Jesus, it is. Jesus always has an option C. That's why Moses parted the Red Sea, because there's always an option C. So, what you have here, that just came right off the top of my head, just like that. When you're in the presence of brilliance, don't ever take it for granted. That came off the top of my head. I want to go back and do the 830 service and throw that one in there, too. See, now I've lost time. Now I'm letting pride get in. I've lost track of what we're supposed to do. Verse 5. See, what you happen here is this idea of Jesus is saying, I'm not going to answer that. And the reason he's not going to answer is because this is a very simple point. He's saying you would not accept the authority of John. If you're not going to accept the authority of John, why are you going to accept the authority of me? If you're not going to accept the calling of John, why are you going to accept the calling of me? Because John was a light for me. John was a witness for me. To reject John is to reject me. So that's why he says, I'm not going to answer your question. Because you would not accept the forewarning of John. You're not going to accept me. And look at their response. If they say, well, John wasn't of God, the people will hate us. But if we say John was of God, then we're going to have to accept that Jesus is of God. So what's their answer? Verse 7. They don't know. Have you ever noticed that? When you start talking to someone, and they have all these answers. Oh my goodness, they have all the answers in the world. And you start asking them just a couple deep spiritual questions, they don't have the answers. Because their foundation is not in Scripture. Their foundation is not of the Lord. And I, and I tell you, I have to watch myself, because I get so frustrated when I'm talking to someone. And I say, well, why do you believe that? Well, I don't know. I just do. You're basing eternity, heaven and hell, over I don't know. It's a pretty big statement to make. Verse 7, they don't know. Jesus says, well, then I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to listen to the forewarners that came before me. You're not going to listen to me. Then he goes and he does this great parable to make this point. Verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to a vine dresser, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant that they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him also away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Now, we know from other gospel accounts, and also if you jump down to verse 19... They knew they were talking about themselves. Jesus, excuse me, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. Let's talk about what this is. All right, the vineyard represents Israel. The vine dressers are, depending on your translation, husbandmen, farmers, tenants, that represents the Jews. God gave Israel this wonderful gift, a relationship with God. Israel got to be God's chosen people. They were the chosen people to take care of this vineyard, this precious gift. And what happened was, 
They weren't taking care of it. So therefore, they sent servants, which represent the prophets. And the prophets were sent to Israel to say, this is not what you should be doing. This is not how you should be acting. This is not what you should be living your life like. Well, what happened is Israel didn't want to hear the prophets, so they killed them. So eventually, God sends his only son, his beloved son, Jesus. And what do they do? They kill him as well. So what's the answer to this? Verse 16, Israel will be judged and the vineyard will be given to others. You and I, Gentiles, we're not Jews. But now we get to have that special relationship with God. It's a beautiful parable. It's a beautiful picture of giving an opportunity, something special. The Jews rejected that. They rejected the forewarning of the prophets. They rejected Jesus. Therefore, they were judged. And now the vineyard has been given to us. Which is a wonderful segue into verse 17. Then he looked at them and they said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whomever falls on that stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, have you rejected Jesus? Now, I'm assuming the majority of us here have not rejected Jesus. Because if we rejected Jesus, we probably wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. We have other things going on and more important things to do, we would assume, if we didn't care about Christ. But let me ask you this about rejecting Jesus. This is what I've noticed. Sometimes I accept Jesus, but then I reject him. Oh, I believe in Christ. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe in all that. See, the most important thing in my life? Well, no, not really. Well, I'm rejecting him. Because look at verse 17. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the most important cornerstone. He's the most important foundation piece of your life. So when you don't have Christ first, when you don't have him as your foundation, what are you really doing? You're really rejecting him. You're saying that he's important. He's just not the most important thing. I mean, right now, work is really busy. Right now, family and kids, it's crazy. School's getting ready to start. Right now, there's summer vacations going on and fair and life and all this stuff. So it's not that I've rejected Jesus. Let's just be honest. He's just not my chief cornerstone right now. But then you have rejected him. I don't say that to attack. I don't say that to pick. I say that to encourage you to say, if I truly made him the foundation of everything I do and say, when he is the foundation of my life, my marriage, my relationship, then everything falls into place. Well, to make him the foundation requires verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to power. You have to decide. You either fall on the stone of Christ and are broken, and that's a good thing. I'm broken in my sin. I'm broken in my choices in life. I'm broken in what I have done. I fall on Jesus. I'm broken, and he fixes me. Or I choose to reject that, and guess what? The stone falls on me. And as the stone falls on me, it falls on me in judgment. And it grinds me to powder. Either way, you will have a run-in with the stone of Christ. Either you fall on that stone and are broken, and he fixes you, or the stone falls on you in judgment and grinds you to powder. Either way, you will. Now the question comes up, have I rejected him? Well, no, I haven't rejected him. But have I made him the chief cornerstone, the foundation of everything I do? Verse 19, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. See, here's the problem. Verse 16, certainly not. Verse 19, they know they're talking about him. They didn't want to hear it. There's this great term in the book of Proverbs, and we don't use it too much today. It's called being a scoffer. And what a scoffer is, somebody that you come present the truth to, and they know they're wrong. They know you're right, and they don't care. That's a dangerous spot to be in. These guys know Jesus is talking about them. 
They know that. They're convicted of that. They're bothered by that. And what's their great response? They don't hit their knees in repentance. They get angry at them. Same thing happens today. When you present the truth of the scriptures to someone, they can know they're wrong. And instead of saying, you're right, I am wrong, there's changes I need to make. Instead, they say, I don't want to hear it. I'm a scoffer. I push that off to the side. I reject that. I reject Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Put the whole thing together. I reject God's word being completely true. That's a dangerous place to be. Because what have we established here in the first 19 verses? Jesus is the authority. God's word is our authority. We base our life off that. We have been given something special, just like the Jews. We've been given that special opportunity to have a relationship with the Lord. Let's not take that for granted. Let's not reject that special opportunity. Let's have him be the chief cornerstone. I fall on Christ, and I say, I know I'm a broken man. Lord, help me. He is everything. That is what we've learned thus far. Now, this continues on because now we've talked about different groups. There's still more coming. They're still trying to trip Jesus up. They're still trying to find a fault in him. They're not going to find it. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies. Isn't that great? They tried straightforward, verses 1 and 2, let's just argue with him publicly in front of everybody. That didn't work. They got shot down. Then Jesus does this great teaching in verses 9 through 19, and they realize he's talking about them. So now they even feel worse. So here's the new idea now, verse 20. Let's send spies and try to trip them up. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we know from other gospel accounts, the people here that are talking were somebody called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were Jews, but their allegiance was to Rome. You need to know a little bit of New Testament here. Rome is in power over Israel right now. Israel is really a defeated state, if you will. So the Jews have some freedom, but they're really under the authority of Rome. The Jews hated that. Absolutely hated it. Well, there was this group of Jews that said, hey, it's not as bad as you think. We're going to make an allegiance to Rome. And they were called the Herodians because they were allegiance to Herod, who was therefore part of the Romans. And so therefore, they were called the Herodians. So they didn't have a problem with Rome. So what happened is there's this big thing about paying taxes. Isn't it interesting that nothing has changed in 2,000 years? There's this big thing about paying taxes. The Jews hated it. Why would we go pay taxes to Rome? They're going to use that money for horrible, nasty things. We don't want that money to happen. We don't want anything to do with it because Caesar looks at himself as a deity. It's basically idol worship. They're going to use that money for bad things, so the Jews didn't want to do it. Well, the Herodians had this allegiance to Rome, and so they kind of sneak in. This is a setup question. If Jesus says pay taxes to Rome, all the Jews are going to hate him because how could you support Rome? But if Jesus says don't pay taxes to Rome, well, then Rome's going to say, how dare you say not pay taxes? We're back to a no-win situation. A and B doesn't work. What are we going to do? You're backed into a corner. God always has a solution. Verse 23. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What a wonderful answer. Whose image is on the money? Caesar's. Come well, and give it to Caesar. Well, we, can, we can't do that. Why? Caesar's money, let him have it. 
Well, that's just awful, wrong, and horrible. No, it's Caesar's money. Give it to Caesar. Let him have it. Whose image is on you? The Bible says you're created in the image of God. So since God has stamped his image on you, you give yourself to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about all those things. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar. Let Caesar have his money, Jesus said. God wants you. Whose image is on you? You are created in the image of God. You are stamped in the image of God. So now you give yourself to the Lord because that's who you belong to. How many times as Christians do we sit here and argue and debate and get worked up over money? We are in the image of God. Wonderful verse that says that my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Not only does he own the cattle, he owns the hills that the cattle live on. I don't have anything to worry about. I am in the image of God and so therefore I give myself over to him because that's how I've been stamped. See, this is this thing about money. Money always pops up. And if you go ask the typical non-believer, what does the church want? The church wants your money. That's what God wants. I've heard God being presented so many times as nearly broke. No, God doesn't want my money. He wants me. So just keep that simple. I render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and I give to God the things that are God. God wants me. I'm in his image, so I give myself to the Lord. Verse 26, they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled his answer and kept silent. Jesus just keeps proving himself again and again and again. Look at what we learned thus far. The authority is the scripture. We've been given a special privilege with God. I don't want to reject that special privilege. And I am in the image of God. So what I learn in my special relationship with Christ is I give him everything. How simple is this? The only thing that Christ asks for is everything. And when you give him everything, you really mean, you understand what it means to be a follower of him. And with that then, as I give him everything, and now brings in this idea of eternity because I'm a child of God. Verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, Saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, this is, this is a fascinating one. Got to know a little bit of background here. First off, Old Testament law. Old Testament law is, let's say that I had numerous brothers, and let's say I was one of the younger brothers. My oldest brother gets married, and before they can have a family, um, he dies. I would have a biblical responsibility to go marry her and then have a family in my honor of my brother and in my brother's name. And if I would die before that would happen, then the next brother, you see the setup here. The Sadducees are trying to set Jesus up. Basically, this woman... Goes through, what, seven husbands, all brothers, winds up in heaven, and the Sadducees are saying, great, now who's she married to for all of eternity? There's seven guys up there. See, the problem is you have to understand a little bit of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the powerful group at the time of Jesus. So we have the Pharisees, we have the Rhodians, we have the Sadducees. Gets a little confusing as you start thinking about it. And the Pharisees were basically their own rules and regulations. They were legalists. Remember that. Herodians, allegiance to Herod, allegiance to Rome. Sadducees, 
chief priest, Sanhedrin, and they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, just the writings of uh, Moses there. So therefore, they did not believe in anything eternal. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in angels. And I remember Jim teaching this to me 20 years ago, and I've never forgot it. They are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. And that's how you remember it. And you'll never forget that. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. And that's exactly what it is. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they come up to Jesus and say, explain this to us. Same thing happens today. People come up, have a working knowledge of the Bible. They want to trip you up. So I was reading the Bible the other day. I read this story about Jonah. So you believe this guy Jonah got swallowed by a big fish and lived in the fish's belly for a few days. Or they pick some obscure Old Testament thing. So you really believe that they were out battling, and as long as Moses kept his arms up, they won the battle. And if he put his arms down, he lost the battle. That's exactly what the Sadducees are doing. Once again, publicly. So you believe in this Old Testament resurrection thing, so this woman now has seven husbands up in heaven. Try and set it up. Now I have to be honest, when I first became a Christian, and even when I first became a pastor... Anytime someone had a Bible question, I would just jump at it. I mean, I would just, just that's what we'd do, let's talk about it. Over the years, after I've walked with the Lord, I've come to realize there are people that have legitimate Bible questions, and then you have rabbit trail Bible questions. And there's a lot of time that I've spent wasting on rabbit trail Bible questions where I could have been spent time working on legitimate Bible questions. This is not trying to sound cocky, this is not trying to sound like I have all the answers, but if someone just wants to ask silly questions about the Bible, I don't want to do that. If they are legitimately interested in the Word of God and the Lord, I want to be there to point them towards Christ. But you run into this. I remember distinctly years ago we had a chance to witness to some people. And as we were witnessing to them, there was one guy that was interested and there were some other guys that just started getting silly. So, did Jesus die for the aliens on Mars? Well, why don't you go there and find out? You know, type of stuff. Just the silliness. And you just see it being this distraction. Same thing here. They set him up. And you know, the thing is, they're not biblically wrong. Isn't that the interesting thing about people? They can have an element of truth in their question. What's Jesus' response? Verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. Jesus comes and says, basically, listen, you're misunderstanding marriage. When we die and go to heaven, there is not marriage. We're not given in marriage. We don't have that married relationship in heaven. Because we're going to be like the angels. The angels aren't given in marriage. And because why? Verse 36. They can neither die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God. Now we have to talk about this, because this leads to more questions. I've invested, Dawn and I just celebrated 17 years of marriage. I've invested 17 years in Dawn. I want her for all of eternity. I've kind of made this deal. So now I'm starting to realize that when I die and go to heaven, I don't get her. Now that kind of bothers me a little bit. And I can remember, I'm a, I'll quote Jim again, I can remember years ago when I remember him teaching on this passage, he said that him and Bonnie made a deal that they were going to pal around together for all of eternity. They may not be married. Does that deal still work, Jim? He's looking at Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie regretfully shakes her head yes. Um, the point is marriage... 
God's already married. So if I go to heaven and I say, this is my wife, Dawn, Jesus is going to be a little bothered by that because Jesus and I are engaged. I know that's a strange thing to think of, but think about that. The closest relationship you can have on this earth is a relationship between a husband and wife. There's no greater joy than marriage, and there's no greater trouble than marriage. A great marriage is a blessing. A bad marriage is awful. And we know that. So the point is this. Jesus says, I am the bride of Christ. So, for all of eternity, I am united in marriage and oneness to Christ. So that's why I, I'm not married to Dawn for all of eternity. But in heaven, she is my sister in Christ. And I want to be around her for all of eternity. I want to enjoy heaven with her. The Bible says that you will be known as you are now known. I firmly believe that in heaven, the dawn and I will have an understanding of who each other are and enjoying that richness of the blessing of heaven. I look forward to that. Will we be married? No, because I am married to Christ, but dawn is my sister in Christ. And that's one of the first things I tell people in premarital counseling. Before you're engaged, before you're husband and wife, you are brother and sister in Jesus Christ. That relationship is better than anything. And you've got to remember that in the back of your mind. So, when I'm in heaven, I am married. I'm married to Christ. And I am equal to the angels in that idea of not being married, not doing godly offspring, etc. That that area is done. But I'm equal to them in serving the Lord and enjoying the beautifulness of heaven. And then Jesus goes one step further to teach them about eternity, resurrection, since they didn't believe in it. Verse 37, he talks about Moses in the burning bush where he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Present tense. God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when Moses was told this, these guys had been dead for hundreds of years. The point is pretty straightforward. God is still their God. Because we live on forever, verse 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. What's their response? Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Question after question after question. Jesus just takes care of each one like that. Whatever you're facing today, Jesus can take care of just like that. Doesn't matter how backed into a corner you feel you are. Doesn't matter how difficult you feel. I don't know how many times I get calls or emails from people and they say, there is no answer. Oh, there's always an answer. Jesus proves it in Luke 20. There's always an answer. Now, let's put this all together. Because we have to do our last few verses here, verses 41 through 44. We learned in the first eight verses, the authority that we have are the scriptures. That is the foundation. That is what matters more than anything. Our life is built off that. If God says it is right, it is right. If God says it is wrong, it is wrong. We trust that. That's where we place our faith in. With that being said, since I have that relationship with the Lord, just like verses 9 through 16 have, I have this special relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He has given me this blessing to know Him. With that understanding, I can choose to reject that, or I can make that my chief cornerstone. I make that my chief cornerstone. I make that my foundation. With that being said, then, with that being my foundation, I choose to render under Caesar what is Caesar's and under God what is God's. What is God's? Me. I give God me. I am in the image of God, so I say, Lord, I am yours. So since I am now His... It leads me to think about eternity. And just as the Sadducees came to question eternity, I look at eternity and I realize my eternal time with the Lord is through Him. As it says once again in verse 38, 
all live to him. If I want eternal life, my eternal life comes through Christ and Christ Jesus alone. Which then takes us to verses 41 through 44. See, they're done asking questions, verse 40. He's taking care of them all. Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, there's nobody left. No one's dare going to question him. They want a public battle with him. No, but it didn't work out. He's going to start asking questions now, verse 41. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? What a simple question. How can the Messiah be a descendant of David, but yet David calls the Messiah Lord? That's what Jesus is asking them. You guys have asked me all these questions. Now it's time for me to ask you some questions. How can the Messiah be a descendant of David, but yet David call him Lord? Now he doesn't give the answer. Because the answer is the Messiah is both man and God. The Messiah is both man, descendant of David, but also God, Lord of David. And then this is what Jesus is trying to say is, guys, when you get this point, everything else falls into place. I don't know how many times I have debated scriptures with non-believers. Then after years I started realizing, why am I doing this? When they come to know Christ, their eyes will be opened. So often I'm sitting there with a non-believer saying, well, the Bible says this, which is true, and I don't think it's wrong to say, until they understand that Jesus is Lord, they don't care what the Bible says. So often people will come up with a co-worker or a family member or a friend, and they'll say, well, they believe this, and they believe that. And I'll ask them, are they saved? No, they're not saved. I said, well, let's start there. Once they taste salvation, their eyes are open, and then they will then accept what the Scriptures have to say. Until that time, they're probably not going to care what the Bible has to say. We've got to remember that. What comes and matters most is Jesus' final point. Who is Jesus to you? Is He Lord? Look at the two bookends of today's message. The first one, the authority of the Scriptures. The last one, Jesus being Lord. If you get those two things down... Every question in life you face in between those things will be answered. It really will. Because Jesus is Lord and the scriptures are the authority. What we have to do is decide this. Go back to verse 38, please. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Two questions to ask you to finish up. Are you living for Christ? Not saying, are you alive? Are you living for him? Is your life built around the foundation of Jesus Christ and what you do and what you say? That's what we're asking. Number two, have you rejected Jesus? Now, once again, your quick answer may be, of course not. No. Have you rejected any part of it? The teachings, the inspiration of the scripture, the foundation of God. Too often we mold Jesus into our image. Do you realize how many different groups of people throughout the world use Jesus as their little icon? Jesus said, the whole of the book was written about me. Think about that. The whole of the book was written about me. So when I run into somebody and they say, well, I love Jesus, I love what Jesus stands for, but those really weird verses in Corinthians that deal with this, this, or that, I reject. Well, Jesus didn't reject those verses. Jesus said, the whole of the book is written about me. So, to accept Christ is to accept everything from Genesis to Revelation. To accept Christ is to accept the authority of God's Word. To accept Christ is to not reject any part of it, but to make Him your chief cornerstone. 
you got to understand that. That's a difficult thing to grasp. Because the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize certain people reject a lot of things of the Bible. And I'm just going to be honest with you. In my flesh, I want to find a way to sneak them in. We went to a water park not too long ago. And to do all the water stuff, you had to be 48 inches tall. Well, you can look at my extreme height and note that my kids will be lucky to hit 48 inches in their life. So, Elias was 48 inches. He could do it. Judah is just, just a hair below. So we went up to the first one, and it didn't work out. And Judah's like, oh, because Elias and Judah do everything together. So Judah's like, it doesn't work out. So we went to another one. It's like, Judah, go have him measure you again. Didn't work out. Went to a third one. Judah, go have him measure. Now, Judah, when they measure you, don't be deceitful. Don't stand on your tippy toes. But stand as straight as you can. You know what I mean? Make your shoulders broad. Just do everything you can. Just trying to sneak him in. He didn't make the cut. Didn't. How many times do we do that spiritually? I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I want to sneak people in. Lord, okay, yeah, they really don't maybe believe everything you said about you on the cross, but they believe in God, and they're open to coming to church, and they talk about how you've done a lot of good things in their life, and they're really nice, Lord. Oh, my goodness, they're really nice people. Can't they just come in? Jesus says it would be wonderful if they could come in when they accept me as Lord and Savior. Boy, that's tough sometimes. And what I see in a teaching like this, it'd be really nice to say, listen, if you guys would just accept 75% of the Bible, I'll be happy. 75%. I don't care about the genealogies and chronicles. You can let those go. But just the rest of the Scripture. No. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. He is the chief cornerstone. He's not one rock in the foundation of your life. He is your foundation in your life. Corinthians says this, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He is the only foundation of a life. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here in Luke 20. He goes, I'm everything. And whatever you face, whatever question, whatever scenario, whatever situation, he goes, I can handle it. I can handle the Pharisees. I can handle the Herodians. I can handle the Sadducees. I can handle it all. Am I your Lord? That's what he's trying to say. Mara, if we're going to come forward here for the final song. We'll continue our study here in Luke. We've only got a few chapters left in Luke. And I tell you, chapter...